0: Thank you for listening to Pastor Sean's Bible Study Teaching Podcast from Emmanuel Baptist Church in Sterling, Colorado. This lesson was recorded during our Wednesday night adult seminars. For more information on Emmanuel Baptist Church, please visit our website at www.ebc-online.org. Now here's Pastor Sean.
1: All right, so we're going to take a little break from 1 Corinthians tonight. Um, Part of it is, is because... with, with me being out at seminary and coming back in the office and everything, I just I didn't really have a chance to dive into chapter 7 of First Corinthians. But also, um, as I've been thinking over the past couple weeks, um, the Holy Spirit is something that we don't talk about a lot in church. I think we, we make a reference to the Holy Spirit. Um, we read scriptures with the Holy Spirit. But when was the last time you actually did a study on who the Holy Spirit is and what the Holy Spirit does. Um, I did a series back in the old building probably in 2008. And so some of the material that i am g- gathered is, is from that time frame, but a lot of you probably weren't around back then, and you probably don't remember that, you know, seven years ago or however long it was. So what I want us to do is, first of all, I want you to turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 4. Now, all of the gospel writers... Well, the synoptic gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, all make mention of Jesus going into the wilderness after his baptism to be tempted by the devil for 40 days in the wilderness. Matthew, Mark, and Luke all make reference to the fact that he was led by the Holy Spirit to go into the wilderness, but Luke Luke makes a little bit different um, take on it. Luke is the gospel writer who focuses more on the Holy Spirit than any other gospel writer. Um, there's a big section in John that we're going to look at tonight. But Luke also wrote the book of Acts, and so obviously um, he has a, the Holy Spirit is on his radar screen. But I want you to notice something, um, and I don't know if you've ever caught this before, but we're going to look at Luke chapter 4, and let's just look at verse 1. Luke chapter 4, verse 1. Jesus... Full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan, and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness. Two things it says there about Jesus. He was what? Full of the Holy Spirit. He was led by the Holy Spirit. Okay? Go down to verse 14. This is after the temptations. He's coming out of the wilderness. Verse 14 says, And Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee, and a report about him went out through all the surrounding country and he taught in their synagogues being glorified by all. Luke is the only one that mentions that Jesus came out of the wilderness in the power of the Holy Spirit. So what have we seen so far with Jesus? He's full of the Holy Spirit, he's led by the Holy Spirit, and he's in the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, let's just keep reading. Let's pick up in verse 16. And he came to Nazareth where he had been brought up, and as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, And he stood up to read and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written. The spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and the recovering of sight to the blind and to set at liberty those who are oppressed to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. So Jesus goes to his hometown pulls open the scroll, It just how happens to be Isaiah, and what does he read? The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has what? Anointed me. So in Luke chapter 4, what four things have we seen about Jesus so far? He was full of the Spirit, he was led by the Spirit, he was in the power of the Spirit, and he was anointed by the Spirit. Now, let's just stop. Before we even understand what those things mean, does it surprise you that Jesus had the Holy Spirit in his life for his ministry? A lot of times we focus on the divinity of Christ, as we should. We don't want to be heretics and say Jesus wasn't fully divine. He's fully divine. He's fully God. But sometimes we downplay his humanity. Was Jesus fully man? Yes. So here's the point. If Jesus, being both fully God and fully man, needed the empowering, the filling, the anointing, and the leading of the Holy Spirit to do his ministry, how much more do we need that in our lives? just for our everyday life. If Jesus needed that, how much more do we need the Holy Spirit? Turn over to Luke chapter 11 for a moment. In Matthew's gospel, this is part of the Sermon on the Mount where he's giving them the Lord's Prayer. And teaches them to ask and seek and knock. But it's interesting what Luke says about prayer and about the role of the Holy Spirit. So look at Luke 19, Luke chapter 11, verse 9 and following. Everybody there? Luke 11. And I tell you, ask and it will be given to you seek and you will find knock and it will be open to you for everyone who asks receives and the one who seeks finds and to the one who knocks it will be open what father among you if his son asks for a fish will instead of a fish give him a serpent or if he asks for an egg will give him a scorpion if you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children how much more will the heavenly father give what or who the holy spirit to those who ask him So in Luke's gospel, when it's talking about asking and seeking and knocking and finding, who's it in reference to? The Holy Spirit, okay? So what I want to do tonight is to talk about the Holy Spirit. Now, there's probably a whole lot more we can do, but for the sake of time, we'll see if we can get through with it tonight. There are ten attributes or ten things I want to talk about tonight of what the Holy Spirit does, who the Holy Spirit is. And so the first thing that I want us to look at Does everybody have a handout? They should be out there. The Holy Spirit is our helper. Now, let's turn to John's gospel, and we're going to spend some time here because in John 14 through 16, which is called the Upper Room Discourse, this is when Jesus is in the Upper Room um, having the Lord's Supper, Passover, before he goes to the Garden of Gethsemane to be betrayed by Judas, He gives some teachings, and probably the most detailed teaching about the Holy Spirit comes from these four chapters in John 14, um, 15, and 16, in what Jesus tells us about who the Holy Spirit is. So let's look at John chapter 14. Let's pick up at verses 16. Let me just uh, pick up at verse 16. John chapter 14, verse 16. Everybody there? Okay, here we go. This is Jesus speaking. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever even the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him you know him for he dwells with you and will be in you okay a couple of observations we'll look at this as we keep going what is the holy spirit called the helper some of your translations may say advocate do some of them say comforter counselor comforter we're going to talk about what that word means okay but Jesus calls him the helper, the counselor, the comforter, the advocate. What else does that passage of Scripture say? He's going to be with you how long? Forever. What else is he called? The spirit of truth, and he's going to dwell inside of you. Okay, go down to verse 26. But the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I've said to you. Now, what's the role of the Holy Spirit here? To teach us. Okay, turn to chapter 15. Look at verse 26. Chapter 15, verse 26. But when the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. What's the Holy Spirit going to do there? He's going to testify about Jesus. And he is again there, he's called the spirit of truth. Okay, go into chapter 16. Look at verse 7. Chapter 16, verse 7. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it's to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go... I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment, concerning sin because they do not believe in me, concerning righteousness because I go to the Father, and you will see me no longer, concerning judgment because the ruler of this world is judged. Okay? He's called the spirit of uh, the helper again, and this time he's coming to convict, to bring conviction. Uh, Go down to verses 13 and 14. When the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth. For he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. Again there, he's called the Spirit of truth. He's going to guide in all truth. And what's he going to do this time? He's going to glorify Jesus. So what does it actually mean that the Holy Spirit is our helper? The Greek word is parakletos. And it's a very rich word in the original language. If you go understand this word, it has a lot of meanings, and a lot of it depends on the context. But parakletos can mean a bunch of different things. Um, Number one, it means one who's called to come to your aid, one that comes alongside and helps, comes to your That's why the ESV translates it as a helper. Another usage of the word, it means one who's called to the front of the battle to help struggling troops. So reinforcement, support, okay? It also means one who is an encourager. It also means one who is a comforter. It also means one who serves as a legal advocate in the court of law. So if we take this imagery of this word parakletos, Holy Spirit helper, The imagery that it means is is that he is instrumental in coming alongside of us in our Christian life to give us help, to give us aid, to give us power, to give us encouragement, to give us truth. That's his job. Okay? And how does he do this? As the sent helper, the Holy Spirit comes to our aid, encourages and comforts us, and intercedes for us by, Jesus tells us, how long is he going to live in us? He will live in us always. So, He comes and He lives inside of us. So, if you're a Christian here tonight, the Holy Spirit dwells inside of you. Now, just stop and think about that for a moment. God Himself dwells inside of you. You're the temple of the Holy Spirit. Number two, He reveals and teaches Christ's truth to us. How many times is He called the Spirit of truth? So, is there a direct correlation between the Scripture and the Holy Spirit? You bet. And he's also going to glorify Jesus. He's going to testify about Christ's person and work to us. What's what's the Holy Spirit going to do? He's going to remind us of the beauties of Jesus and his cross and his resurrection. He's going to glorify Jesus and help us to fix our eyes upon him. He's going to draw our attention to the majesty of Christ so that we will worship Jesus. One of my favorite descriptions of the role of the Holy Spirit comes from J.I. Packer in his book, Um, keep in step with the Spirit. This is what he says. He gives an illustration. You guys may have heard this illustration I've given before. Outside on our front of our building, we have what's called a floodlight. What's a floodlight do? A floodlight, does a floodlight draw attention to itself? What's a floodlight do? It lights a path, okay? So when you are walking the path, do you look at the floodlight or do you look at the path? You look at the path. The Holy Spirit's like the floodlight. He's in the background, but he's very, very important because he's shining the light upon Jesus so that we can see Christ. And so his job is to shine all of our attention upon Jesus so that we can see Jesus more clearly. The Holy Spirit's kind of like the the floodlight. Now, one thing I want to say, the Holy Spirit is not an it. Okay? The Holy Spirit is a person. He's not a ghost either. The King James has given us kind of a weird translation by calling it the Holy Ghost. When you think of the Holy Ghost, what do you think of? Like Casper the Ghost or some weird manifestation. It's not a force. It's not an anointing. It's not a power. When people call the Holy Spirit it, it, they are not giving a biblical definition. He is a He. What does Jesus say in all those passages? When He comes, when He comes. He's the spirit of truth. He will do this. He will do that. He, 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 not it. And so we need to remember that the Holy Spirit is a divine person. So let's listen to J.I. Packer. He says this, So I plead, never think or speak of the Holy Spirit in less than personal terms. My heart sinks and I wince when I hear Christians calling the third divine person an it instead of a he. You cannot understand the Spirit's ministry to grasp the fact of his personhood, and it is where no strong sense or clear grasp of the Spirit's work is found that his personhood comes to be denied. Look at liberal and radical Protestantism, Judaism, Islam, Unitarianism, and Christian science if you need proof of that. And then let's listen to John MacArthur. He says, The Holy Spirit's not a mystical power. He's a person just as Jesus is a person. He's not a floating fog or some kind of ghost-like emanation. It is unfortunate that the translators of the King James Version used the term ghost instead of spirit. For generations, people have had the idea the Holy Spirit is an apparition, something like Casper the friendly ghost, the 1950s and 60s comic book and cartoon character, but he's not a ghost, he's a person. So I just want to remind you, number one, he is, he, not it, he is our helper, okay? Number two, what's the second thing that we understand about the Holy Spirit? He also inspired the scripture writers. He is the one who worked in the minds and the hearts of those that wrote the Scripture to write down our Bible. Let's look at 2 Peter 1, 20-21. Peter says, Knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation, for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So it wasn't like Paul was sitting down in the prison cell and said, hey, I've got a cool idea. Maybe I'll write some groovy stuff that's kind of spiritual. How did it happen? The Holy Spirit carried him along to be able to write down exactly what God wanted written down. So the Holy Spirit worked in the hearts and the minds of the writers of Scriptures to write down exactly what God wanted written down. And then we also know from 2 Timothy 3.16, all Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be competent, equipped for every good work. Now this says all scripture is breathed out by God, but when we think about the word breath, do you guys know the word for breath in the Old Testament? It's the Hebrew word ruach. It means wind, breath, or spirit. In the New Testament, it's the word pneuma, which also means breath, spirit. So yes, God breathed out the scriptures, but I believe that the scripture teaches that it was done through the Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit is the one who gave exactly what the scripture writers were to write. So let's just stop and talk about scripture for a moment. Is scripture absolutely true? Why is it absolutely true? That's an interesting answer. <laughs> now, why, why is the Holy Spirit, I mean, why is the scripture absolutely true? Because the Holy Spirit breathed out God's word into the hearts and minds of the scripture writers. And what they wrote down in the, original, in the original documents is exactly what God wanted to the very last sentence and spelling and grammar and everything like that. Okay? All right, number three. He is the one who causes us to be born again. So let's go back to the Old Testament. Let's go back to Ezekiel. Ezekiel 36, this is a prophecy from the Old Testament. The, the, God is making a promise that something's going to happen in the new covenant. Something's going to happen, future tense. So this is God speaking. I will sprinkle you, or I will sprinkle clean water on you you shall be clean from all your uncleanness and from all your idols I will cleanse you and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you and I will remove the heart of stone from your heart of flesh and give you a heart of flesh and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. So what's God saying he's going to do? He's going to put his Holy Spirit in us. And what is the metaphor he uses? We have dead, stony, cold hearts, right? God's going to take those dead hearts, those stony hearts, and He's going to replace them with a new heart. He's going to put the Holy Spirit inside of us. So when you became a Christian, what happened? What what was your life like before you were a Christian, whether you knew it or not? You had a dead heart. You had a stony heart. You had an unresponsive, dead heart. And when you were born again, the Holy Spirit came and took that heart out and gave you a new heart, gave you a new identity, gave you new life. Now, it's interesting Because what does Jesus say in John chapter 3? Turn over. You should still be in John 15. Turn over to John 3. Very familiar passage of Scripture. Jesus tells us what it means to be born again. So John chapter 3, look look at verse 1. And Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I say to you you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear it sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the spirit. So when you were born again, the Holy Spirit, like the wind, blew into your life. And when He blew into your life, what did He do? He took out that old heart and gave you a new heart and caused you to be born again. You experienced a new birth, a new life, a, a resurrection. So the Holy Spirit's the one who did that to you. Aren't you thankful? Can you cause yourself to be born again? No, the Holy Spirit has to do it. He has. To, it's supernatural. And so that's why the Spirit comes and does that. And so nobody's going to be a Christian Unless the Holy Spirit causes them to be born again. So, when you hear people say that person's a born again Christian, is there any other type? Is there any other type? Should we put born again? I know what people mean. It's a label. They're basically saying you guys are fundamentalist wackos, is what the, you know, the culture is <laughs> basically saying. They're born again Christians, as opposed to can you be a Christian and not be born again? You can't truly be a Christian. In the full sense of what the word means without actually being born again. Now, so you really shouldn't put born again in front of a Christian because a Christian, by its very nature, is someone who's been born again. And the one that does that is the Holy Spirit. He's the one who causes us to be born again. Okay, so number one, He's the helper. He's a divine person who lives inside of us to give us help. He's our helper. Number two, he inspired the scripture writers to write down exactly what God wanted in the scriptures so that we would have an inerrant inspired Bible. Number three, he's the one who caused us to be born again. But number four, and maybe you haven't thought about this, he is the, um, the, the agent of illumination. And that sounds like a really like freaky movie, the agent of illumination, Coming soon to a theater near you. Um, no, they, let me just talk to you about what, the, what it means by illuminate, illumination. First of all, what does illumination mean? Okay, when I turn on the light, what am I doing? I'm illuminating. Okay, I just turned the lights off, it got dark. Illuminate just means the light bulb goes on. Okay, how many times have you read the Bible and you're like, I have no idea what I'm reading. And all of a sudden, the light bulb goes on and you're like, Oh, yeah, that makes sense. Was that because you were so clever and figured it out? Or is it because the Holy Spirit turned the light bulb on, if you will, in your mind to understand the Scriptures? That's what illumination means. But we've got a passage in 1 Corinthians 2. We looked at this back before Christmas when we were looking at 1 Corinthians. But look at what he says here. He says, Now we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, that we might understand... Keyword word there. We might understand the things freely given us by God. And we impart this in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he's not able to understand them because they're spiritually discerned. Can a lost person understand spiritual things? Can they understand the facts of the gospel? Yes. Can they understand stories from the Bible? Can they even understand maybe that Jesus died and rose again? Yes, but can they truly grasp the spiritual nature of the Scriptures and be able to respond and be impacted by the Scriptures without the Holy Spirit? No, he's saying they can't. These things are spiritually discerned. The, the, the natural person, the lost person, can't do that. Um, one of the things that you should pray every time you read your Bible is Psalm 119.18. This is what I kind of pray when I do sermon prep. Open my eyes that I may behold wondrous things out of your law. So what are you praying and asking God to do? Open your eyes so that you can see what's there. There's times when I'm doing sermon prep or doing other things, and I'm sitting down, I'm like, I have no idea what this means. And there's been times in my quiet time where I prayed, God, I know that I'm going to have to be looking at this passage of Scripture today. Help me to understand this. Because I'm going to have to stand before the congregation and explain it. And if I don't understand what it means, I'm sure they probably are not going to understand what it means. So help me. I need your help. And so the Holy Spirit's the one that comes to the help, helper, counselor, comforter, to, to, to enable us to be able to see. Let me just give you a definition of illumination. This is from a, a textbook, but I think it's a pretty good. Illumination by the Holy Spirit helps the Scripture reader or hearer understand the Bible and creates the conviction that it is true and is the Word of God. So the Holy Spirit, basically the whole thing there is understanding. He helps you understand the Bible. He helps you understand spiritual truths. He works in your heart to make you believe that. Okay? All right. So those are kind of like things related to... The, the big picture is the Holy Spirit's our helper. He lives inside of us. Okay. Big picture, he, he um, helped the scripture writers or he inspired the scripture writers to write the scripture... Um, he is the one that caused us to become Christians in the first place, born again. He's the one that helps us to understand the Scriptures. But now, this is where we're going to kind of get into, okay, the Christian life. How does the Holy Spirit help you now that you're a Christian? Okay, you, all of us in this room, I'm assuming, have been born again. We've been regenerated. The Holy Spirit lives inside of us. Okay, now what does He do? Does He just kind of hang around in heaven waiting for Jesus to come back? Or what, I mean, what is, what is the Holy Spirit doing now in your life? And this is a big one. The Holy Spirit, this is number five, the Holy Spirit works out our sanctification. And we're going to talk about sanctification here in just a moment. But listen to First Thessalonians 5, 23-24. Now may the God of, of peace himself sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus he who calls you is faithful, he will surely do it. Now, it doesn't specifically say here that the Holy Spirit's the one that does that. It says the God of peace will do that. So I'm not going to split hairs on the scripture because obviously God the Father helps in our sanctification. Jesus helps the Holy Spirit. They all work as Trinity to do that. But what is sanctification? What is sanctification? Or if you, if you like a better word, there's different words you can use. Um, sanctification is the theological term but maybe a more practical word that I, I like is this: pursuing holiness, or maybe another word would be spiritual growth. However, you want to, whatever word you want to use, sanctification is basically your pursuit of becoming more like Jesus and growing spiritually. Okay, so let me just ask you a quick question: How many of you here want to grow spiritually? How many of you want to be stagnant and not... I mean, how many of you want to just be like, okay, I'm a Christian and I'm waiting for Jesus to come back and I'm just going to kind of sit here and like a bump. How many of you want to grow? I think all of us want to grow in our Christian walk. And so the Holy Spirit is the one that does that. So Wayne Grudem in his systematic theology defines sanctification as this. It's a progressive work of God and man that makes us more and more free from sin and like Christ in our actual lives. So it's this growth process Growth process, uh, and I use the word process. Is your growth instantaneous? Wouldn't it like to be like a microwave where you said, okay, I've got like my bag of popcorn, which is my instant holiness, and I put it in the microwave, and it comes out, and I'm, I'm this holy person that has no issues. Wouldn't you love to have that? No, it's a process. And sometimes it can be a painful, slow, <laughs> grueling process. So let's just look at some scriptures that talk about how the Holy Spirit does that. Why does that have to be painful? It doesn't have to be painful, but sometimes it is painful. And the reason why it's painful is because the Holy Spirit exposes your sin. And you like sin because of your flesh. And sometimes it's very, very hard to fight and get rid of that sin in your life. And the Holy Spirit's moving you towards holiness. And sometimes you don't want to have to go through that. It's, it's an internal fight. Does that make sense? Kind of like of... Yeah. I mean, I don't know if I have Galatians. Well, let's get there. There's a passage. Well, let's just turn there real quick. Turn to Galatians. Because this is a very, very important passage of Scripture. Galatians chapter 5. It may show up again later on in the, the notes tonight. But um, look at verse Galatians five, sixteen, and seventeen. Galatians five sixteen and seventeen. This is this is why it's painful, <laughs> okay? All right, verse sixteen. But I say walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the spirit and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh for they are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. So what's that telling us inside you? You've got the flesh. The moment you become just a minute. The moment you become a Christian, does all your sin go away? No, it's still there. And what does the Bible say here? That remaining sin is at odds at war is opposed to who else lives inside you? Holy Spirit. So there's this battle that you're going to have your entire Christian life. And that's why it's painful sometimes, because you're you're going to want to gratify your flesh, and the Holy Spirit's going to want to glorify Jesus. And those two things inside of you are going to be at odds at times. And that's why we need to live or yield or submit ourselves to the Holy Spirit. And we'll talk a little bit more about that. Yes, Don. I
0: think some of the pain, too, comes from people around you. So if you're starting to grow and the people around you aren't, okay, sometimes that causes some problems, like they might start to rebel against you, or just think about people and other, where there really is persecution, they're growing, and they're following the Lord, and the world is not reacting kindly to that, so I think that it is a war with your flesh, but
1: it's the war with the world. Yeah, it's the world, the world, the flesh, and the devil are all against you. The world, the flesh and the devil, the, the unholy Trinity, the world:
2: like when
1: you, like in your place of Yeah, the world is just this world system of non-believers that you have to live with okay. that and your flesh is what's inside you, and then you also have the devil coming at you. So all three of those factors are working in your life to prevent you from growing in Christ. And that's why we need the Holy Spirit. Let's keep, let's, let's keep moving on. Uh, hopefully these scriptures will help explain some more. Uh, Romans chapter um, 5. More than that, we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, endurance produces character, character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts. How? Through the Holy Spirit who has been what? Given to us. The Holy Spirit's been graciously given to us as God has loved us to help us what? What's the context here? What's the context of that verse? Suffering and growth and character and endurance. And so the reason that we suffer is so that we can grow to be more like Christ. And the one that helps us through that is the Holy Spirit. He's the one who helps us because he's been given to us. He's been poured out in our hearts. Romans eight fifteen through 16, for you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you've received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. Okay? Let's go to 2 Corinthians chapter 1. Verses 21 and 22, and it is God who establishes us with you in Christ and has anointed us, and who has also put a seal on us and given us his Spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. Okay, so the Holy Spirit is the one that's been given to us, he's in us, he, he's the seal that Christ establishes us with. Galatians 4, 6-7, And because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father, so that you are no longer a slave, but a son, and if a son, then an heir through God. Again, just the role of the Holy Spirit. 2 Thessalonians 2.13, but we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the first fruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. Again, the Holy Spirit's there sanctifying us. And then 1 John 4.13, I know we're going fast. By this we know that we abide in Him and He in us because He has given us His Spirit. Okay? Sanctification increases throughout our life. It should be more and more, right? So I, I, I've, I've, I've drawn this diagram many, many times. I mean, if you've been in any class with me at any period of time, you've probably seen me draw this little graph here. Okay, this, this is your new birth. This is your, your, your born again. And this is heaven up here. Is your path a straight line? No, it looks more like this. You've got peaks and valleys and dips and curves. But if you were to plot it, is there growth? Okay. If there's flat line and no growth, it probably means you were never born again in the first place. So sanctification should increase. Technically, let me ask you a question. Should you be closer to Christ now than you were a year ago? I mean, technically. I mean, we're not going to sit here and confess whether we are or not. But I'm just, you should be in your life growing closer and closer to Christ year by year, month by month, and you should be able to look back and say, man, I'm closer to Christ this year. I've I've grown in areas. I'm maturing. Um, Paul even tells us there in 2 Corinthians 3.18, and we all with unveiled face beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another for this comes from the Lord who's the Spirit. So what does the Holy Spirit do? He transforms us. To look more and more like Jesus from one degree of glory to another. Meaning it's that continual, gradual process throughout our life. And here's the disappointing thing. Sanctification is never complete in this life. Will you ever be perfect? Will you ever be sin free? There's some denominations that believe you can. They've redefined sin. Um, You'll never be sin free but there's hope that you can grow. Um, Paul says in Philippians 2, 3, 12, 14, not that I've already obtained this or I'm already made perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what's behind, and I'm forgetting what lies behind and straining toward what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of effort, call in God in Christ Jesus. So he... Is pressing. Paul's saying, I haven't arrived. I'm not perfect, but I'm going to press on. I'm going to forget what's behind. I'm going to press on. I'm going to move forward, and my goal is Christ, and the Holy Spirit's the one who's moving me there. Okay? Um, I think we already looked at this passage of Scripture, but we'll look at it again. First Thessalonians 5, 23, Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, and may your whole body, soul, and spirit be kept blameless at the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. So here's a question. How does the Holy Spirit help us deal with sin? There's a very, very important passage of Scripture that you need to underline in your Bible. It's Romans 8.13. I spent a lot of time meditating on this passage of Scripture. And I could probably spend a whole couple weeks talking about this one passage of Scripture. But what does it say here? What is Paul saying? For if you live, if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Okay, so what's the, what's the thing that we're commanded to do there? What are we, what are we commanded to do there? Put to death the deeds of the body. Okay, let me can I just put can I just make it two simple words? We're to be killing sin. Is that what put to death means? Kill? I mean, last time I checked, it doesn't say, you know, put it to bed, hide it away. We're to be killing sin. Mortifying, the old King James says. It's it's this whole idea of killing, crucifying, crucifying dealing a death blow, the deeds of the body are just basically sin. They don't necessarily have to be outward sins we do with our body. They can also be thoughts and attitudes, okay? So whose responsibility is it to put to death the deeds of the body? You. Who's you? That's us, right? So whose responsibility is it? You kill sin. Now, if that's all the Scripture had, it would be a fool's errand, wouldn't it? It would be impossible. What does Paul put in there? But if by the Spirit. So whose responsibility is it to kill sin? Yours. Whose responsibility is it to kill sin? The Holy Spirit's. Which one is it? You or the Holy Spirit? Yes. (laughs) Is the Holy Spirit going to get up and do your quiet time for you? Is the Holy Spirit going to suddenly transport you out of the parking lot if you're going to a strip joint? I mean, I that's kind of a weird weird thing or something. Is the Holy Spirit going to somehow like, move your body to, to not sin? No, you have to take the responsibility. But how do you do it? You do it through the Holy Spirit, which means what? What, what do you have to be doing constantly? Asking the Holy Spirit to help you and you've got to be taking responsibility. That's why Paul says in Galatians 5.25, what does he say? If we live by the Spirit, let us also, what? Walk by the Spirit. Now, one of the things that you should be praying for, not only should you be asking the Holy Spirit, so let's just start thinking, if this is, if these are the things the Holy Spirit does, how should we be praying, or what should we be, is it appropriate to pray the Holy Spirit? Yes. Is it appropriate to ask Him to do things in our lives? Yes. So what should we be asking Him? Holy Spirit, please help me to kill this sin. If in your heart of hearts a sin begins to rise, or a lust, or an affection, or some type of desire starts to rise within you, at that moment, you've got to make a choice in your heart of hearts to say, Holy Spirit, this is not of God. This is sinful. I need you to help me kill this. And as the more that you do that, the more sin is weakened in your life. What happens if the opposite happens? What happens if you follow that instinct or you follow that desire and you don't kill it by the power of the Holy Spirit? What ends up happening? You end up committing the sin... It becomes easier and easier, and you don't rely upon the power of the Holy Spirit. So a lot of times it starts in the mind and the heart before it ever gets out into an action. And that's where you really have to get down deep where the Holy, and ask the Holy Spirit to search you deep and say, man, I've got this lustful thought. Holy Spirit, kill that thought. Holy Spirit, I've got this jealousy in my heart. Would you please kill that and, and take it to the root before I act out upon this? And you've really got to ask the Holy Spirit to give you that help. But here's the sixth thing that he does. He produces his fruit within us. This is very, very important. But the fruit of the Spirit is... Does it say fruits or fruit? Fruit, right? Is it one fruit or nine fruits? It's one fruit with nine aspects. Now, do you get to pick and choose which aspects you want? What are these? But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. So here's something that you should do every day. Let's make this very practical. You should, in your prayer time, whether it's in your quiet time or whether you're driving down the road or whether you're in line at Walmart you should say holy spirit please please produce your fruit in me i need your fruit like right now i need your fruit and look at that list technically all nine we should not just ask for one or two we should ask for all of them working together but is there one area that you and i that i'll tell you the area i struggle with patience is there, an area, is there an area of that fruit that, that you guys struggle with? And it's different for each person, okay? Depending on your sin issue. What do you think you should ask the Holy Spirit to do? So like with me, with patience, I really, I'm an impatient person. And sometimes I'm not the gentlest person. Sometimes I can be um, a little gruff. And so in my quiet times and things, I've ha- I really have to pray, Holy Spirit, would you please today produce within me the fruit of patience? I can't. You can ask God to help you. you. I mean, you can ask God, you can ask Jesus, but I'm just saying, biblically, right here, it's called the fruit of the Spirit. So I think it's appropriate to address the Holy Spirit in your prayer, asking Him to do what He specifically has promised in the Scriptures to do. It's not wrong to pray to God to do it, it's not wrong to pray to Jesus. I just think it's a little bit more precise, precisely biblical to pray to the Holy Spirit to ask Him to do that. And if you pray to Jesus to produce the fruit of the Spirit, it's not like Jesus is not going to hear you and be like, no. But I'm just trying to think biblical categories. The Holy Spirit is the one who produces his fruit in us. So praying for the fruit of the Holy Spirit. Okay? You guys ready to keep moving? All right. Next one. He sovereignly endows believers with a spiritual gift slash gifts. Because I don't believe that you just have one. You may have one. You may have more than one. The key word is there is the Holy Spirit sovereignly gives it to you. So if he gives you more than one, he's sovereign over how he gives those gifts. So let's look at um, 1 Corinthians 12, 11 through 14. All these are empowered by one and the same Spirit who apport... And all these, he's talking about spiritual gifts, I'm sorry. In the context, he's talking about the spiritual gifts. All these spiritual gifts are empowered by one and the same Spirit who apportions to each one individually as he wills. So what's that telling? Who determines what spiritual gift you get? The Holy Spirit, he apportions it, he gives it to you individually according to what he thinks you need, sovereignly. For just as the body is one and has many members and all the members of the body, though many are one, so it is with Christ. Now, we could spend a lot of time talking about spiritual gifts and looking at the gifts, and we don't have time to do that. But just to know that if you're a Christian, you have a spiritual gift. And the Holy Spirit has determined what that gift is. And it's not for you to make much of yourself. It's for you to serve the body of Christ. And so if everybody in the body of Christ was using their spiritual gifts at full capacity, there should be literally no needs in the church and outside the church. What's the problem, though? Most people don't work within their gifts. So let's just talk. Let me just talk real briefly about gifts. I didn't mean to do this, but I think it's probably important to do that on spiritual gifts. I, I like to call it a gift mix because um, I think it's not just so cut and dry. I think God works with your personality and your passions and your talents and your so obviously there's a spiritual gift a supernatural spiritual gift that the Holy Spirit gives you okay so it's a gift it's supernatural but I also think the Holy Spirit also works with your natural talents God's also giving you natural talents he's also giving you a passion or an interest in things so, what are? How is God using your natural talents, your passions, and your interests with the spiritual gift He's given you? Also, um, others in the body will confirm the gifting in you. They'll they'll look at you and say, you know, I see. Other Christians around you will see the gift, and they will confirm that. They'll often say, you know, you're really good at that, or you get confirmation from others in the body. Also, one of the main things that happens, though, is this. You know how Nike said, just do it? I think the the most important thing is if you see a need in the church, just serve. I think sometimes we worry so much about spiritual gifts and everybody's worried about which one they have that Nobody ever gets around to actually just doing something. So just serve. If there's a need, whether, wherever it is, just serve. It may not be the place that you like, but over time, if, the only way that you're going to discover your spiritual gift is through experience. You can take 100 different spiritual gift inventories to tell you you got the gift of this or you got the gift of that, but you're never really going to fully experience it until you actually begin to serve in specific areas. And so that's just a short thing on spiritual gifts. Holy Spirit gives them to you. All right. Um, oh, I, I think I have some notes there. Yeah. It's not just the body of Christ. Um, oh, here we go. I, I kind of, I did have some notes there. The Holy Spirit chooses which gifts he decides to give to you. The Holy Spirit baptizes us into the body of Christ so that we are unified, though diverse. The Holy Spirit's primary purpose in granting us spiritual gifts is for the building up of the church for the common good. Okay? Now, here's another thing, and this kind of goes along with what Pastor Ron shared with us on, um, on Sunday. Yes, Brent?
2: There's one of that, that isn't in there, and that's experiences. Experiences yeah. that God gives you because... Yeah. Uh, it, for a long time, we studied the... Was it the shape...
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's a good one. Your your past experiences, um, passions, interests, and maybe past experiences. All right. The Holy Spirit also fills us with His power, so that we can boldly share our faith. So let's turn to Acts chapter four. We're not going to look at this whole chapter, but. Um, Acts chapter 4. Let me just give you the background here. Peter and John are getting arrested for um, speaking the name of Jesus. They get put in jail. And um, the people back at the church are basically praying. And Peter and John get released and they go and report to them. And let's just pick up in verse 24, um, Acts 4, 24. When they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken, and they were all what? Filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to what? Speak the word of God with boldness. So there's two things that you see all through Acts, okay? Well, actually, there's three things. You see a pattern in Acts, and I can, I can, I can show you this pattern. We don't have time. Here's the pattern you see all through Acts. The people pray. Then number two, they're filled with the Spirit. And then number three, they speak boldly. I mean, you can see this pattern from the very first chapter of Acts all the way through. They're always praying, and they're praying for boldness, okay? They're praying for boldness to speak. And then the Holy Spirit comes and fills them. And then once the Holy Spirit fills them, then they speak with boldness. Okay, you see this all through Acts. And so I want to just talk about the filling of the Holy Spirit. Okay? Because there's a difference between this Acts type of being filled with the Holy Spirit and the Ephesians 5 being filled with the Holy Spirit. There's two types of fillings, okay? I want to explain this because there's some confusion out there. Okay, let me just tell you the difference. Okay, the filling that we see in Acts, well, let me, let me, let me just follow my notes, make sure because you guys are going to get confused. Is the filling of the Holy Spirit something distinctly unique and different from the indwelling or baptism of the Holy Spirit? How do we figure this out? Well, I may not stick so close to the notes, but I will show you this. Every time the word filled with the Holy Spirit is used in Acts, it's in what we call the aorist tense. The aorist tense means like snapshot or simple action. So in English, I kicked the ball. Simple action, right? I kicked the ball. I went to the store. So it's a one-time filling that comes upon a person at a point in time by the Holy Spirit. For what purpose? To be able to what? Speak boldly. Well, speak boldly for what? To speak boldly, the gospel. To to witness. Oh, yeah, to witness. Speak. Yeah, when I say speak boldly, I'm talking about you know sharing the gospel, witnessing, sharing Christ, sharing your faith. So, you will find that Peter was filled with the Holy Spirit twice in Acts and he boldly spoke. And you may ask, well, wasn't he already filled before? Yes. It doesn't mean that he was saved a second time. It just means that the filling of the Holy Spirit in Acts is a point in time when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and gives you that boldness to be able to witness. Okay, and it can happen over and over again. So here's the question. It happens to Paul. Paul twice it says, Paul filled with the Holy Spirit, then two chapters later, Paul filled with the Holy Spirit, You're like well, wasn't he filled the first time? Yes. This is not this is not the character trait of being full of the Holy Spirit. We'll talk about that in just a moment. This is a point in time where the Holy Spirit comes upon you specifically to give you boldness. Okay? And so what should you be praying for? It's two sides of the same coin. If you pray for boldness, then you're also praying for being filled with the Holy Spirit because the only way you're going to speak boldly is if you're filled with the Holy Spirit. So whether you pray for boldness or whether you pray for being filled with the Holy Spirit, you're really praying for the same thing because the outcome's the same. What's the outcome? You begin to speak the Word of God with boldness. Now, how many of you have ever... We've talked about this before. You're witnessing to somebody and you have a freedom... You have this sense of confidence and the words coming out of you aren't really your words. Has that ever happened to anybody before? That's what it means to be filled with the Holy Spirit. This word boldness that it talks about here in Acts and also talks about it in Ephesians and Colossians, it really means this freedom of speech. There's this freedom. There's this power. There's this, it's just free-flowing. You're saying the words, no holds barred, and the Holy Spirit's just you know, going through you and, and giving you the words. Okay, so that's what it means to be filled with the Holy Spirit and acts to speak boldly. Now, what happens with the adjective? Okay. Sean, do
2: you delineate, in this case, the sequence of from what the Old Testament, for instance, what Nathan did with...
1: No. I think it's the same thing. I think you see a pattern in Scripture of the Holy Spirit filling somebody... And they, like the prophets, were filled with the Holy Spirit to speak boldly. If you go back to Luke, Simeon was filled with the Holy Spirit. He spoke. John the Baptist, filled with the Holy Spirit. He spoke. Jesus, he's been anointing me with the Holy Spirit. He preaches. The disciples, filled with the Holy Spirit, they speak. Paul prays. The Lord, he prays in Ephesians, pray that I may speak boldly in the power of the Holy Spirit. So I think it's all throughout Scripture, it's this boldness that comes through the Holy Spirit coming upon you in a point in time. Is that what I do? I hope sometimes. I mean, that's what I pray for. I mean, when I preach, I pray. Yeah, when I stand up to preach, I pray definitely that I'm filled with the Holy Spirit, so that when I speak, I can speak boldly. But I don't want you to think this is a preacher thing. This is for any Christian that wants to share their faith with somebody that's lost. Because don't we need boldness? Yeah, but I mean, most of us are. Let's just put it Most of us are kind of scared to share our faith, aren't we? Yeah, most of us, you know, are kind of cowards. Now. There's adju- there's examples in other places in the Bible where it talks about the adjective. Someone who was full of the Holy Spirit. That's different. One is related to witnessing. Okay, so there's there's two fillings of the Holy Spirit, okay? these have nothing to do with your salvation okay so we're not talking about a second blessing we're not talking about getting a second blessing where you end up you know speaking in tongues or whatever when you get saved you get the fullness of the holy spirit he comes and he lives inside of you you're baptized in the holy spirit but there are two types of fillings that happened with the Christian one's related to witnessing the other one's related to character okay this is what Paul talks about in Ephesians 5 18. So let's, took, let's look at Ephesians 5, 18 through 21. Paul says, Do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery. But, what does he say? Be filled with the Holy Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with all your heart, giving thanks always for everything to God the Father, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another at a reverence for Christ. Now, this is a different verbal form. Okay, in Acts, when it talks about witnessing being filled, this is an aorist, which means a one one point in time. And almost always, once you're filled with the Holy Spirit, it leads to bold witnessing. Okay, so this is this is the Acts type of filling of the Holy Spirit. Okay, this is kind of confusing. Hopefully, this is making sense. Is this making sense so far? The Ephesians 518 filling is different. This is related to your character. And it's different verbal form. What, is, what does it say? Be filled. Okay. First of all, it's a command. This was just a description. The Holy Spirit filled them. This is actually a command. Be filled. Number two, it's in the present tense, which means what? Keep on continually being filled. Number three, it's passive. Do you fill yourself? No, the Holy Spirit's the one that fills you. So it's a, it's a present active imperative, if you want to know what the Greek is. So no, it's actually a present passive imperative. Um, so it's a command to be obeyed. It's to continually be filled, and it's passive. You don't fill yourself, the Holy Spirit does it. Now, in context, guys, let's talk about context. Context is everything, right? What do I mean by context? What comes before it in the Scripture and what comes after it in the Scripture? How do you know a person is Spirit-filled? Character-wise. Paul gives us the answer there. He gives four... Proofs or four evidences of what a spirit filled person looks like. And they all start with ing. What's the first one? Addressing one another. With what? Psalms, hymns, and spiritual psalms. This is the whole idea of worship and encouragement. Are you encouraging one another? Are you worshiping with one another? Do you long to be together as God's people where you're talking with one another? Your speech is edifying. You're, you're wanting to be around believers. It's more the corporate worship aspect. What's the second one? Singing and making melody to all the Lord in your heart, right? This is more your heart. More your private worship, your private joy, the, the joy of the Lord that comes through you privately. What's the second one? Or the third one, I'm sorry. Giving thanks. Just some of the time? What does it say? Giving thanks, what? Always and for everything. So a thankful person that you're not bitter, you're not upset, you're not angry, you're a thankful person. And the last one is you're a submissive person. You're submitting to others. You're putting others before yourself. You're not prideful. And so if you want to look at a spirit-filled person, if there was anywhere that Paul would say this is what a spirit-filled person looks like, do we see barking like dogs? Do we see jumping from the rafters? Do we see people getting zapped by Benny Hinn and falling down? And do we see anything here? If there was any place where Paul would say, here's what it looks like to be filled with the Spirit, it means you come up with your white jacket and you start throwing it on people. And people f- if there was any place he would say that, don't you think it would be here where he uses the terminology, be filled with the Spirit? What is the evidence of a Spirit-filled person? These things look to me like... The fruit of the Spirit, don't they? A consistent, so a Spirit-filled person is a person, I would say, that consistently, as a lifestyle, displays the fruit of the Spirit, both in their personal life and in their corporate life with others around them. Okay, That's the character, be filled with the Holy Spirit. There's another be filled with the Holy Spirit, which is related to witnessing. And that comes at a point in time. So however you want to look at it, how can we say it? A spirit-filled person is someone who boldly shares their faith and lives in the fruit of the Spirit. That's what a spirit-filled person looks like. All this weird stuff you see on TV has nothing to do with what the Bible says. If you if a person that's boldly witnessing about Jesus and living in the fruit of the Spirit, that's a spirit-filled person. Okay. Uh, let's keep going here. So we, uh, oh. Let's go back. <laughs> we see the connection between the filling of the Holy Spirit and bold witnessing. Um, the word boldness, I've, I've kind of gone out of order. I've already talked with you. Um, this is what our friend Dr. Artazerdia, his definition um, in his book, Spirit Empowered Preaching, um, this is what he talks about, the sudden, this sudden filling of the Holy Spirit. He says, it's an instantaneous, sudden, and sovereign operation of the Spirit of God coming upon a man or a woman so that his proclamation of Jesus might be attended by holy power. Now, one thing that we need to, to to make a distinction between the filling of the Holy Spirit, both for witnessing and for character, it is different than the indwelling or the baptism of the Holy Spirit. When do you get the fullness of the Holy Spirit? When you get become a Christian at your new birth. When the Holy Spirit sovereignly regenerates us by causing us to be born again, He permanently indwells us and baptizes us into Christ. He's our deposit. So, do we have to wait for something later on to get more of the Holy Spirit? No. Now, do you experience the filling of the Holy Spirit later on in the ability to witness? We've just said yes. Do you get filled more and more in your character with the Holy Spirit as you go on in the fruit of the Spirit? Yes. Okay, but the moment that you're saved, you get all of the Holy Spirit. Okay, now different preachers and theologians over the years have called it different things. This, this, is, what you should be, this is what you should be praying for me every, or whoever preaches. Whoever's preaching in our pulpit, you should be praying for this, for that person. It's normally me, but sometimes it's Andrew. That you should be praying for this when you're about to witness to somebody. This is different terminology that different people have called it over the years, okay? Spurgeon called it that sacred anointing. the the anointing of God upon a preacher to be able to clearly and boldly proclaim truth. George Whitfield called it thunder and lightning. Pray for the thunder and lightning. The Puritans called it that certain unction, the unction of the Holy Spirit, and Martin Lloyd Jones called it the smile of God. Whatever you want to call it. I just know when I stand up to preach, I want the smile of God upon me. I want the unction upon me. I want the empowerment upon me so that when I speak it's not me speaking it's the Holy Spirit coming out and I'm able to boldly and freely and clearly communicate. And whether I'm standing up to preach or whether I'm talking to my next door neighbor, it doesn't matter. It's, it's, it's the filling of the Holy Spirit to be able to boldly share the gospel when people need to hear. hear. Okay. Um, listen to what Paul, remember what we looked at a few weeks ago when Paul came to Corinthians or when he came to Corinth? 1 Corinthians 2, 2-5. Two For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And how did I come to you? I came to you in weakness and fear and much trembling, and my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power. Why? So that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. If anybody's going to get saved or God's going to do a great work, it's not because the preachers are so great or we're so... Um, or even if I, don't feel like you're going to... Have you bungled a gospel presentation before? And afterwards, you're like, I don't know if I got it all out right, and I don't know if I said this right, and I, I kind of got my words messed around. Me, me, me. Give yourself, take, Get yourself off the hook and realize that can the Holy Spirit take that and do an amazing thing? And if that person's going to get saved, it's because the Holy Spirit did it in his power, not because you were so persuasive or powerful. All right. The other thing that the Holy Spirit does, this is the last thing, and then I'm going to talk about He helps us in our weakness when we don't know what or how to pray. Have you ever had those experiences where you don't know what to pray or how to pray? You're just kind of sitting there and you're like, I'm so overwhelmed, I don't even know where to begin. And what do you do? Well, what is Romans? Romans chapter 8, verse 26 says this, Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray, for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. There's times where you just may have to say, you know what, God, I really don't know how to pray, but I'm trusting that the Holy Spirit's taking my feeble thoughts up to the throne and they're getting there. And he does that. He promises to take our feeble, when we don't know what to pray, how to pray, and don't ask me how this all works. I have no idea. I've never heard the Holy Spirit groan. I don't know how it operates. I don't know what it looks like. All I know is we have a verse here that says he helps you, um, which is a good comfort because there's times where we don't know what to pray, okay? So, here's the last thing I want us to talk about. These are all the things the Holy Spirit does. Here's number 10. So, if the Holy Spirit is all of these great things to us and does all these wonderful blessings for us, here's the question, how should we respond or treat the Holy Spirit? (coughs) You ever thought about that? Well, let's look at some scriptures that talk about specifically how we relate to the Holy Spirit. The first one is, do not grieve the Holy Spirit. Ephesians 4, how do you think about that for him? What does it mean to grieve the Holy Spirit? What does it grieve? It makes him sad. He's a person. Can the Holy Spirit cry, if you will, at our actions and our attitudes? Well, you're a person. You have the Holy Spirit living inside of you. Isn't that your soul? Well, yeah. You're, you've got a body and you've got a soul, and then the Holy. That's where the Holy Spirit. Yeah, and then one day we'll have a new body. Okay. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Do not grieve the Holy Spirit. Ephesians four twenty nine through thirty two. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only as such is good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender hearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. Okay, context, context, context. What grieves the Holy Spirit? Based upon this passage of Scripture. Yes. Sin does, but what what particularly type of sin grieves the Holy Spirit? When Christians act mean and ungodly and say things and have bad attitudes and are unforgiving. Do you think, think about how often we have grieved the Holy Spirit in our families, in our church, just by the way that we talk to one another. Are you building people up or are you cutting people down? Are you angry? Are you bitter? Are you, are you tenderhearted? Are you forgiving? So what's the opposite of it? If you're tenderhearted and you're forgiving, that makes the Holy Spirit happy. And so I don't want to, sometimes when I sin, when I sin against God, I, I look trinitarianly at all three persons of the Trinity. So when I confess sin, I will say, God the Father, I've broken your law. I relate to God the Father. I say, God the Father, I've broken your law because you are father, you are judge. I've broken your law. Please forgive me, Father, for breaking your law. Jesus, I've sinned against you because you died on the cross for that sin. It's almost like I'm slapping you in the face twice or crucifying you again. And So Jesus, I ask forgiveness for the sin that I've just committed that's put you on the cross. And Holy Spirit, this sin has grieved you. So, we, you know, and I, I don't really confess sin to the Holy Spirit. I don't know, I don't know any scriptures that do that. But, I, but I, I, I tend to want to, when I confess sin, I want to acknowledge to the Holy Spirit that I've grieved Him. I don't want to leave Him out. Because we have some scriptures here that talk about grieving the Holy Spirit. And He's a divine person. And He's saddened by that. And so, one of the ways that we respond to the Holy Spirit is we don't grieve Him. Okay? The second way is we don't quench the Holy Spirit. Do not, 1 Thessalonians 5.19, do not Quench the Spirit. Now, let's just turn there and look at context because I've just given you the, the flat verse, but let's turn there and see maybe some clues in the text that give us some ideas about what it means to quench the Holy Spirit. Um, let's pick up in verse 14, 1 Thessalonians five fourteen. And again, context, context, context. What comes before, what comes after. Don't read the Bible just by sentences, read the Bible by paragraphs. Or you can get a lot of weird interpretations because sentences, you're not meant to interpret the Bible just by sentence, especially in letters. They were meant to be interpreted as paragraphs, as larger units of thought. So what comes before and what comes after determines the meaning. So verse 14, And we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. See that no one repays anyone evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, giving thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Do not quench the Spirit. Do not despise prophecies, but test everything. Hold fast to what is good. Abstain from every form of evil. So what quenches the Holy Spirit? When you're not giving thanks, when you're not rejoicing, when you're not praying, when you're not encouraging, when you are doing evil, when you are um, you know, repaying brother evil for evil, when you're not doing good, that quenches the Holy Spirit. So lack of prayer, lack of thankfulness, lack of rejoicing, lack of worship, lack of encouraging, those types of things quench the Holy Spirit. Now, don't ask me what it means, how that, how that works. When you think of quench, what do you think? Puts puts it out. It's not like the Holy Spirit ceases to be there because He's always there. But is His manifest blessing upon your life, your family, or your church? Can the Holy Spirit move in a special way in the life of a church? Yes. Can a church clinch that movement? Yes. And so I think we need to be really careful that we don't put ourselves in a posture to be able to clinch the Holy Spirit especially if he wants to move in a special way in our church to do something. And it's not just a, it's a corporate thing. Everybody's, everybody's got to be, you know, seeking the Holy Spirit and, and, and asking for the, for the fruit of the Spirit and things like that, okay? Um, the next one, these are all the, the, the negative ones. The last one here, do not quench, do not grieve, do not resist, the Holy Spirit. And let me unpack this for you because we have a a passage where Stephen, when Stephen's about to get stoned and he's before the Sanhedrin and he gives the speech and he's talking to the Pharisees and the Sadducees and all the religious leaders in Israel, notice what he says, you stiff-necked people, Uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did not your fathers persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you now have betrayed and murdered. Now, context, context. Okay, what is he saying? You resist the Holy Spirit like who? Like, your, like the Old Testament did. And how did they resist the Holy Spirit? They did what? What? They killed and persecuted the prophets. Okay, so how did these resist the Holy Spirit? Persecuting and killing the prophets. What's our modern day application? You're not going to kill prophets, hopefully. But can we resist the Holy Spirit when we don't accept the words of truth that are preached to us from preachers? When you don't accept the preached word of God and it has to be true. I mean if it's a, if it's false teaching, but if a pastor or a preacher preaches to you truth and you're resistant to it and you don't accept it and you don't obey it, you're resisting the Holy Spirit. Because what's the Holy Spirit wanting to do? He's wanting to bring growth and truth to your life and you're not you're not listening to you have a hard heart towards those that are preaching truth to you. So, finally We've got a few minutes here. Finally, and you're like, man, this is a lot to take in tonight. And I know that. How do we commune or have intimate fellowship with the Holy Spirit? And I want to challenge you tonight. Oftentimes we talk about God the Father, Jesus the Son, and the Holy Spirit becomes the red-headed stepchild of the Trinity. We don't talk about it. How do you cultivate worship? And I think it's appropriate to have fellowship and worship of the, of the Spirit. First of all, worship Him as God in Trinity. So worship him as God. He's not less than God. He's not sub-God. He shares the fullness of God. He's the third person of the Trinity. Ephesians 2.18 says, For through him, Jesus, we have both access in one spirit to the Father. Now think about that for a moment. How do you have access to the Father? We'd say no man comes to the Father except through Jesus. But what is Paul saying here? Yes, that's true. But we wouldn't have access to the Father or Jesus unless we had who? The Holy Spirit. Do you realize you would not be a Christian without the Holy Spirit? Because what does He have to do? He has to convict you of sin. He has to come and cause you to be born again. And He's the one that draws you to the Father. So for you to even believe in Jesus, to get to the Father, the Holy Spirit had to be instrumental in that. So worship Him and thank Him for that. So thank Him for the work of Regeneration, sanctification, and indwelling power in your life. Um, we've already looked at that Second Corinthians passage. Some of these are, are repeats. You can go back and look. Okay, pray to him for comfort and help in times of trials and temptations. Risa, we talked about this in staff meeting where sometimes you said you're driving by and you just yell out, Holy Spirit, help me in this moment. I mean, pray to him for comfort and help in times of trials. Be humble before him. Ask Him to fill you so that you can boldly share your faith, what we talked about earlier. Consistently use the spiritual gifts He's given you to serve the body of Christ. Ask Him to produce His fruit and work within you. Ask Him to transform you to be more like Christ. We looked at that 2 Corinthians 3.18 passage earlier. Ask Him to open your eyes to the Scripture, enable you to understand it. John 14, 26, but the Helper, the Holy Spirit, and the Father will send in my name. He will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I've said. Ask Him to focus your eyes on Jesus and glorify Him. John 16, 13, and 14, when the Spirit of truth comes, He will guide you into all the truth, for He will not speak of His own authority, but whatever He hears, and He will speak, and He will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify Me, for He will take what is mine and declare it to you. Walk by the Spirit. And finally, experience the wonderful fullness of God as Trinity. Now, there's one passage of Scripture where we find the Trinity, right? The Great Commission. Matthew 28, 19, 20, "...all authority on heaven and earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit." teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you, and behold, I'm with you even to the end of the age. But here's an awesome passage of Scripture that has all three persons of the Trinity, and I want you to meditate upon this this week. 2 Corinthians 13, 14. This is how 2 Corinthians ends. How does it end? The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Do you see all three persons there? And what's the Not that this is mutually exclusive where, you know, the fa, you only experience this from the Father and you only experience this from the Son. No, but, all right, so we've got God the Father, we've got Jesus the Son, and we've got the Holy Spirit. What does this passage say we experience with God the Father? The what? The love of God. God is love okay what does it say about jesus the grace of jesus and what does it say about the holy spirit the fellowship now again it doesn't mean that you don't have fellowship with the son and you don't have grace from god and you don't have the love of the son this is just paul's way of saying i want you to meditate upon the richness of who the trinity is that We can experience the love of God. We can experience the grace of the Son. And we can experience the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. But let me ask you a question. Can you experience the grace of the Son without the fellowship of the Holy Spirit? Can you experience the love of God for you without the fellowship of the Holy Spirit? Now, the Holy Spirit's indispensable for you to be able to experience the love of God, the grace of the Son, So every experience of love that you have from the Father, every experience of grace that you have from Jesus, every time God answers a prayer or you have intimate communion with God, just remember the Holy Spirit's the one that's making that possible. And don't shortchange His role in your life. And ultimately, He's to glorify Christ, but all the things that we've looked at tonight, um, I just want us to have our eyes open to who the Holy Spirit is, And what he does so that you have a better understanding of who it is that we worship we are trinitarian christians we don't just believe god the father god the son and oh yeah we kind of talk about the holy spirit so hopefully tonight was helpful to help you understand a fuller uh, comprehensive view of who the holy spirit is and what he does we've got just a few minutes left are there any questions or comments when when we when you say about grieving the holy spirit
0: and like when we are in a sinful nature we are going through something I mean he's obviously still with us he doesn't leave so why don't you hear
1: explain what you mean by hear
0: well because you know you, you you know when the Holy Spirit talks to you he's, he's always guiding you but then you're going through a time of like maybe a sinful period of your time or just okay. a struggle or, or a temptation or something and
1: well there's a psalm that says if I share if I, I can't quote exactly but it says if I cherish iniquity in my heart God will not hear and it's not like he's left the building like Elvis left the like <laughs> it's that your sin if unconfessed and unrepented of severs that not the relationship but the fellowship he's still your God he's still your father he still lives in you but your sin is polluting you in that moment and so unconfessed sin an unrepented sin grieves the Holy Spirit and you shouldn't expect to hear from Him because He'll bring conviction to you and you'll feel that conviction but if you're not obedient and repentant it's going to be really hard for, for Him to work and move in your life. I'm not saying He won't because obviously He's sovereign and He works even in the midst of our sin because I think there's times where we won't even know when the Holy Spirit works because He works behind the scenes. That's not, that's not. Does that answer your question, Shauna? That unrepented, unrepented, unconfessed, habitual sin creates a barrier of you to be able to hear from the Holy Spirit. Does that make sense? Okay. Good question. Anybody else? So, flip side, what does that mean we need to do? Keep short accounts with God. What does that mean? Keep short accounts means that when we have sin. We need to make sure we confess it and we repent of it. And we, you know, First John 1, 9, God is faithful and just to forgive us of all righteousness. If we forgive us of all unrighteousness and cleanse us, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just. We've got to confess. Yes.
2: But times of sin in my life that I've, I've felt bad,
1: mm-hmm.
2: I've realized that is the Holy Spirit mm-hmm. because of the conviction. Yes. Because if I don't feel it, yes, that's when I... I see.
1: Oh. Yeah, yeah, and that's, that's an act of grace where the Holy Spirit will convict you in times of sin as His grace so that you're softened. Mm-hmm. The times you should really be scared is when you don't feel anything. Because right. I think Paul says you can have your conscience seared as like an iron to where you get so used to sinning that the Holy Spirit brings conviction and brings conviction. And you're just like, you know, you're at the point where I don't really care anymore. I'm just going to kind of keep doing it. That gets to be a real scary point. Why do people go to hell if
0: they do that?
1: That's a trick question. <laughs> do people go to hell if they what? what Habitual unrepentant sin. I would say sins a person to hell. But let me back that up and say if you're a true Christian who's truly been born again, you won't do that. God will make sure, you may you may sin big time, and he may discipline you, but you're never going to get the point where you're going to live in unrepentant, habitual sin. It shows you weren't really a Christian in the first place. And so, Look the...
0: Look at King David. Yeah. I mean,
1: he went a year. Yeah. I mean... Look at Peter.
0: Yeah. I, will, I mean, that's a long time. Yeah. He was so soft towards God. I mean, yeah. he was Christian all the time as well. I mean, he just loved God and then got into that sin his conscience, it didn't take him very long yeah. to be real cold and yeah. sick and hard-hearted. But God in His grace sent Nathan to him a, as a... And I don't think just anybody
1: could have done what No, have no, Na- I think Nathan was filled with the Holy Spirit oh, to know. have boldness to go speak the truth because he knew he could... The Scripture doesn't <laughs> say that, but, I mean, prophets... Look at 2 Corinthians 7 real quick, mm-hmm. verse 10. I know... I'll give you a, just one, just something to leave on. I just wanted to. 2 Corinthians 7, verse 10. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. There's a difference between godly grief that leads to repentance. Godly grief that leads to repentance is a grief that says, I've sinned against God. I'm sorry for my sin. I'm going to repent. And I'm gonna own up to the consequences and I'm gonna hold my and I'm gonna be held accountable. Worldly grief says, man, I'm really upset that I got caught. What do you mean by the,
0: <laughs> first, the first one? You're gonna hold, hold
2: up to
1: the consequences you're willing to, you're willing to accept the consequences. Worldly grief says, man, I got caught. I don't wanna to have to deal with the consequences, I don't want to get punished. I'm just sad because I got caught. I'm Is sad because I think stuff? any type of sin. Any sin that has consequences. Godly, godly grief says, you know, I've sinned and I'm and I'm sorrowful for this, and I'm going to be willing to live with the consequences. And I'm not, I'm not just worldly grief. Just says, man, I'm I'm upset. I'm I'm sad because I got caught, or I'm sad because I have to deal with these consequences. You don't have any intention of repenting. You have no intention of going back, and and you have every intention of going back and doing the same sin again. You just got caught this time, and you're sad about that. That's I think that's what Paul's saying. Yes.
0: through all that stuff you know he knows yes i need to let these people go but his heart hardened each time yeah. so every time he resisted god the heart hardened more but he still knew yeah he still knew what he's doing and he still knew what so he was did he resisting. yeah we're on the flip side with david like i believe david was probably yeah he continued on in this thing but he was in turmoil when he talks about his bones wasting away yeah. you know just like that yeah conviction in the yeah, he, he was so well in his heart because he knew he wasn't yeah, right with God. Yeah. And, eventually and then
1: he confessed. He yeah, we have a song. Well, there's three people in the Bible that you see worldly grief. Pharaoh, Esau, and Judas. Those three men went to hell. And they had a godly, they did not have a godly grief. They they were remorseful, and they may have been sorry, but they had hard hearts, and they they didn't, they didn't truly repent. Brent, you're going to say something I that, that we, we need to
2: pray. I think you make a good argument that in 1 Corinthians 5.13, when there it is, it says give him over to Satan, well here it is, you're praying that God will convict this man of mm-hmm. his sin and bring him around and probably in 2 Corinthians when he's brought back, because the conviction of the Holy
1: Spirit yeah. has come up. Yeah, And I guess the bottom line tonight in all this is that, you know, don't quench, don't grieve, don't resist the Holy Spirit. Pray for the power of the Spirit. Pray for the filling of the Holy Spirit. Pray for the fruit of the Spirit. Pray for the comfort of the Spirit. Um, And let's do that right now. It's 8.01. We pray. Father, we thank you for the time we've had tonight. And and Holy Spirit, we thank you that you caused us to be born again. You opened our eyes. You convict us. You you come and live inside of us. You guide us. You produce your fruit. And you give us boldness. And, and, And Holy Spirit, we want to be a people that don't quench you. We don't want to grieve you. We don't want to resist you. We want to walk in step with you. So focus our eyes on Jesus. Empower us, embolden us, equip us, encourage us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.